Amen. Appropriate song for the text we're going to look at this morning. Oh, how I love Jesus. And I pray that that wasn't just words on our lips, um, but was the attitude of our hearts. It's the heart He's after, and so I pray that that's, that's what He's getting. Uh, if you would, uh, be open to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke in chapter number 7. We have a baby dedication service. I know I mentioned that earlier, so we'll, we're going to put off starting our study uh, through Nehemiah until May the 19th. So on May the 19th, we'll start uh, digging through Nehemiah, and I'm looking forward to that. Pray that you're reading Nehemiah maybe and seeing some of the themes there and, and uh, preparing our hearts as we take a few months uh, to dig through the book of Nehemiah, which means that we're not in a particular series right now. Uh, I didn't want to start Nehemiah and then have to pause it for baby dedication and then start it again. Um, but as I was praying this week in a, for a direction the Lord might take us in our time together, I was reminded about uh, Brother Michael's message from Luke last week. He did a phenomenal job of, of pointing us to the Lord and stirring our hearts and our affections towards Him. And, 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 and so I just started reading through Luke this week uh, after what he preached. I said, well, let's, let's just look at Luke. And... Uh, when when I was reading through Luke, I came across a passage that's not in the other Gospels. In Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50, this is a unique story to Luke. Uh, there We have other stories in the Gospels, other accounts of Jesus being anointed, but this, this is a different account. This is a different story. And I came across this encounter, and there are three characters. We have Jesus, we have a Pharisee, and we have a woman who is simply described as sinful. She's a sinner. Talk about a trio. We have the one who is righteous that walks in humility. We have one who thinks he's righteous and thinks too highly of himself in Simon the Pharisee. And we have one who knows that she's unrighteous. And she ends up at the feet of the one who is. And as I was reading through these stories and reading through Luke, I noticed this passage in verses 36 through 50 is sandwiched between descriptions of Jesus performing incredible miracles. In chapter 7, uh, the same chapter this story is in, Jesus heals a Roman official's son who was sick and was on the brink of death. And then just a few verses later, he raises the son of a widow from death. And if we go to the other side of where we're at this morning and we look in chapter 8, we see that Jesus calms a storm. He heals Jairus' daughter. And He heals the woman with the issue of blood as Brother Michael preached last week. So what are we to make of this episode here sandwiched between these incredible accounts of Jesus' miracle. And I want to put to you, you see it in the bulletin if you have one, the title of the message, the point of this passage is this, the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed is that He can forgive sin. The greatest miracle Jesus has and ever will perform is His ability to forgive sinners. And you may be thinking, that's well and good, but I could really stand to receive some of those other miracles of Jesus. In fact, that's where the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel points us towards. But have you ever wondered 
just for a moment. What happened to the centurion's son, that Romans, that Roman official that Jesus healed from almost dying? You ever wondered that? I can tell you what happened. He got sick again and he died. It's the reality of a fallen world and living in it as fallen people. Have you ever thought about maybe the widow's son? Just a few verses later after the centurion's son is healed, that Jesus brings him back from death. You ever wonder, well, what happened to him? He died again. The greatest miracle of all, the forgiveness of sin, lasts forever. There's no end to that. It continues and lasts forever. And that's the point of the passage this morning. The greatest miracle of all. Look in verse 36 and let's, let's read through it here and get a feel for it and we'll look back in it. It says in verse 36, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And so he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom the can he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my, kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Well, we thank you for this account of your word. We thank you that you invite sinners to come to you. And this woman took you up on that invitation. And she came. She fell at your feet. She wept. And she worshipped. Lord, may we walk away from this text being a little more like her and less like the Pharisee. You receive sinners unto yourself and we confess to you now we're sinners. We fail to meet up to the standard that we're called to. And we have fallen away. 
But we thank You for a big Savior that forgives big sinners. Pour our hearts and our minds and our eyes towards Jesus this morning. Help us seem, help us love Him. Lord, I pray for the one here who, who feels like they can't come to You. They're dirty. They're sinful. May Your invitation to come be extended to them this morning. Help us who have been forgiven know just how much we have been forgiven so that our love would increase for Jesus. We ask that You would do it in His name. Amen. The first thing I want you to see is the occasion for this gathering. In verse 36, it simply says this, One of the Pharisees asked Him, being Jesus, to eat with Him, and He went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now let's talk about the occasion. The occasion is a dinner. But when we read this word dinner here, it's going to be different than what we think of. We think of supper, right? We think of food. That's what dinner is about for us, the eating aspect, the food. But eating a meal together and sharing dinner together was different in Jewish culture especially the influential and well-to-do Jews. In this case, the Pharisees here. In this time, dinners were a time for meaningful and important conversations. Right? It was less about the food and more about the conversation that would happen around the table when they would gather. Not only that, when we eat dinner, we shut our doors and probably close our blinds and windows off from the world. But in this day and age, these type of dinners would have been open to the public. The meal, the seat at the table was for invited guests only, but the doors would be open, the windows would be open, and people would gather around this house to hear this conversation. In fact, definitely wealthy Jewish people, influential Jewish people, they would build their house around a central courtyard with the place where dinner would take place nearest so that they could entertain folks with the conversation that would happen at their house. It made them feel important to have people there to hear them talk. Could you imagine that? And so they built their houses around it. And this table, in this room, it would be a a, a big room. One of the bigger rooms in the house was where dinner would take place. And they would set the table right in the middle so that people could line up around the walls in this dining room and they would stand and they would witness and hear and even sometimes allowed to ask questions and interject themselves but now eating around the table was different than what we think of too if you noticed it said that they didn't sit down at the table it said that they reclined at the table which would mean they were lying down right when you recline you lie down they reclined at the table and so when they ate Uh, Those at the table, they would lie down with their heads closest to the table and their feet would extend behind them as far from the table as possible. And they would prop their head up on their elbow uh, or on their hand and they would rest their elbow under a cushion and the table would just be barely above the ground. And that's where they would eat their meal, everyone at the table. Because in, in Jewish culture, We know this from the Old Testament particularly. Cleanliness was a big deal. 
being clean was the most important thing. And in this day and age, guess what was believed to be the most dirty part of your body? Your feet. Your feet were the dirtiest aspect on your body. And so they would make it where your feet would extend as far away from the table as possible. How do you accomplish that? You lie down with your head facing the table and your feet all the way behind you. And because they, they, they get this belief about their feet because people wore sandals and it's particularly warm in the Middle East. I went to Israel a couple years ago. It's very, very warm climate uh, in the Middle East. And in this day and age, there were no paved roads. There was dust. And so as they would walk, guess what happens when you're, when, when you're walking in heat? You begin to sweat. The sweat rolls down your feet and on your ankles. And as you're walking down a dusty road, guess what happens to that dust? Clings to your sweaty feet. Makes a little muddy mixture even sometimes too. And so, the feet would get rather disgusting as you might could imagine. And the second thing I want us to see is at this dinner table with this context in mind about what's going on, the occasion... An unexpected guest arrives in verses 37 and 38. Read those. It says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, being Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. We have a woman that appears at this dinner table, apparently uninvited, right? But still, remember, this would be open to the public. And so she hears Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's house, and she goes. And Luke records in verse 37 the word, Behold. And behold. When we read behold in the Scripture, it means this. Something shocking is going on. Something incredible is happening. Literally in the Greek it reads, and look, a woman! Exclamation point. And now what is it that we are supposed to be shocked to see? A sinner has entered the house of a Pharisee. Almost always when the word sinner is used in reference to women, it usually means that it is someone who has been sexually promiscuous. Okay, More than likely, here's what it means. It probably means she was a prostitute. That's the type of woman that has just walked into the house of the Pharisee. No wonder Luke, Luke says, and look, a woman who is a sinner. This would be very surprising to see. It just didn't happen. It's not someone that you would expect to show up. And it's not that someone has shown up, it's the type of person that has shown up. She's just entered the house of a religious leader. Now now put yourself in this man's shoes. Put yourself in Simon the Pharisee's situation for just a moment. Everything hinges on his reputation in the community. So people might start wondering, what's a prostitute doing in your house? You think about that part of this text? She's just walked in to his dinner party. Did they get some scheduling something conflicted here? And she's walked into his house, and he is a man who is serious about holiness, supposedly. 
He's a man that is serious about sin. He is serious about morality and he is serious about immorality. He doesn't have just anybody in his home and he doesn't just have anybody at his table. He's already taken somewhat of a risk by having Jesus at his table if we're talking about his reputation. But there is not one circumstance in a real Pharisee's home would a prostitute be welcomed. But here she is. Standing in his home behind Jesus as they sit at their table and everyone is shocked to see it. So now, put yourself in her situation. We've been in Simon's shoes. Think about the courage it must have taken to walk into this Pharisee's home. She knows the Pharisees. She knows how they are. They make a big distinction between themselves, the righteous, and the sinners. In their mind, sinners are unworthy. They look upon people like her with contempt. So she's showing a a lot of guts by walking into this religious leader's home. But it says that the very reason that she does so is because she's heard someone else is there. She's heard Jesus is there. And that makes all the difference. There is no fear. There is no judgment that was going to keep her from getting to see Jesus. And I want you to notice what she does when she gets there because here's what happens. She worships. She worships. Notice her gift in verse 38. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 37. It says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, alabaster is a type of marble, right? And it was very expensive. It cost a lot, but it was also really pretty to look at. It was really nice. And and on this bottle, on this flask, there would be a, a long neck, right? And there would be, there wasn't a cork or there was no top or anything. It was meant to be used one time. And so in order to use the the perfume that was inside, you had to break the neck. This very expensive piece, you had to break it in order to get into it. And now that ointment, like I said, it means that it was like perfume. It is very expensive. And here's the point. Here's the point Luke is making here. This woman has brought with her, knowing she's coming to see Jesus, the most expensive thing she owns. That's it. The the thing most valuable to her, she is bringing it and placing it literally where? At the feet of Jesus, we'll see. The most valuable, expensive thing she has, she wants to bring it as a gift to express her love for Jesus. So that's her gift. Notice the next thing, her tears. Verse 38. It says, standing behind Him at His feet, she's weeping. She's weeping. She begins to to cry uncontrollably. She's standing with her back against the wall with several other people around and she has very strategically positioned herself as close to Jesus as she could. It says she's now standing over His feet. If you have the picture of the uh, occupation or the occasion as we talked about earlier. She is standing over His feet. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know why she's weeping. 
The text doesn't say. Which means, one thing we can say about weeping is that it's more than simply a tear or two that falls from the eyes. No, she is full on in an ugly cry. You know what I'm talking about? You know what an ugly cry is? Where you just can't control it? There's fluids coming out everywhere. That's what's happening. She's ugly crying over the feet of Jesus. Now, I think what the text is communicating is that she was already weeping when she showed up. Right? She's not standing there and something happens and she begins to cry. She's come to Jesus because she's been weeping. She's already been in an ugly cry. Now there's one theory about her crying uh, that I'll share, and, and this is a bit of conjecture, but I think it's probably a, a pretty plausible way that we can say, well, maybe this is why she was weeping. Uh, have you ever heard of the practice of Bible study called harmonizing the Gospels? What we have, we have three synoptic Gospels that basically tell the same story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But what, what we see is that they have organized the stories in different ways. But when we put the three together and we put the story side by side, we can put together a timeline of Jesus' ministry and we can know when specific events probably happened. And so when we do that with the Gospel of Luke and this story, here's what we know. That Jesus and this Pharisee are having a meal and this woman shows up right after Jesus preaches in Matthew chapter 11. Okay, So just take a moment and, and, and stay here and turn to Matthew 11. The way we know that is right before this happens, Luke records that John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus. In Matthew 11, right before what Jesus preaches there, John the Baptist sends messengers there. Right? So when we harmonize, we know about when this is occurring. And in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, right? Here's what some people have said. They believe this woman hears this message from Jesus. When Jesus finishes preaching, Simon the Pharisee invites him to dinner in his home. And when she leaves, she goes home, she gets the flask, and she goes and finds Jesus. And so it would be these words that she heard as Jesus finishes His sermon. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I, I stumbled upon this because you may have heard, how many of you have heard of Warren Wearsby before? Great expositor of the Bible. He died this week and I had his commentary on Luke and I said, I wonder what he said about it. This is what he said, that maybe this was the reason why she was crying. And so I'm going to go with it. I think perhaps this is what happens. She hears Jesus say these things. And this sinner, this woman of the city with a reputation, hears it and she's burdened. And she has come to Jesus to find rest for her soul. She was convicted. Her heart was pierced. But she saw Jesus for who He was. 
the one that gives rest to burdened hearts, and the one that makes all the difference. And I want to say this for just a moment. It does no good for us to be weary without going to the place for rest. It does no good. It does no good to see our sin for what it is without going to the one who forgives sin. So do you see how that connection? She's weary. She's burdened. She is filled with the knowledge of her sin and she has just heard this man say, I'm the place that gives rest. And so she goes looking. She goes looking for him and she finds him at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And she's now standing behind him weeping. And as she's weeping, remember ugly cry, her tears begin to fall on Jesus' feet. Now she probably doesn't mean for that to happen, but it does. And when she looks down to see, she notices something very significant. Jesus' feet are still dirty. They still got dust and mud and sweat on them. And as we'll see, this was a sign of lack of respect from Simon the Pharisee to do that to Jesus. When most hosts would invite a guest into their home for dinner, they would provide, they would do either one or two things. They would provide water and rags for the des- for the guests to clean themselves up, or if they had a slave in their service in their home, they would make the slaves clean the feet of their guests. This Pharisee don't do that for Jesus. His feet are still dirty. And perhaps she's standing there. Her, her tears are flowing. They're hitting Jesus' feet. And perhaps she looks around the table and she looks at everybody else's feet and guess what? They're clean. They're clean. A, a direct insult to Jesus from Simon the Pharisee. He, he cleans everybody else's feet, offers for them to be cleaned, but not Jesus. She's not going to let that slide. In her eyes, it's Jesus that deserves all honor and respect. And so these tears that have begun to fall, she puts them to use. And a pool collects on Jesus' feet. And the next thing I want you to see is her humility. Look at what the text goes on to say. So she's weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and then wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Talk about humility. Talk about bringing oneself to a point of humbling. The first thing she does, she uses her hair as a rag. Those feet that would have been caked with mud from sweat and dust. She unravels her hair, uncovers her hair, and she bends down and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. Now this could be even more surprising because for a woman in this day, it was believed that her hair was her glory. That's going to be important. That her hair was her glory. And it was 
culturally unacceptable for a woman to show her hair in public. It was believed that the only person who could see a woman's hair uncovered was her husband. It was her glory to only be shared with her spouse. It was such a serious uh, offense in this day that a man could legally divorce his wife if she were to show her hair in public. She doesn't care. Here's the big point I want you to see. She lays her glory aside to give Jesus glory. She lays it to the side. She says, in this moment, it's not about me, it's about Him. And she lays her glory aside. She goes against the cultural norms to serve Jesus. Not only is she humble in using her hair as a towel, but as I said earlier, most guests would have their slaves clean the feet of their guests. Foot washing was a task for slaves. The lowest of society. So, so hear this. Even if she had brought a towel, notice she had wet Jesus' feet, it would still be putting herself on the same plane as a slave to bend down and wipe them with a towel. But she washes it even with her hair. But, but I want you to notice this too. It says she's standing behind Him at His feet, but then she's wiping His feet with her hair. Reckon how she got into a position to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. She kneeled. She got down on her knees at the feet of Jesus to wipe His feet. The, the ultimate posture of humility and, and worship and service is on her knees. She's cleaning. And, and not only that, she, she cleans them and then it says, and, and she begins to kiss them. She's kissing his feet. Now remember, we said this earlier. A person's feet was considered the dirtiest part of them. It was the most unclean part. She doesn't seem to care. Think about this for a moment about those feet. In just a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year, we don't know exactly. But these feet that she's kissing would eventually be pierced by a nail for her sin. They'd be pierced. She is kissing the feet of the one who will lay himself down as her payment for sin. What was considered to be the most unclean part on a person would be nailed to the cross to make her clean. Think about that. Now notice the ointment too. So she doesn't just bring this ointment to look at and show off about what she's got. She breaks the neck and she pours it on the feet of Jesus. She's brought the most valuable thing she owns and she spares none in service to Jesus. She has thrown herself by faith in full abandonment in worship and service to Jesus. So now that's one response we see. Remember, there's another person here. Look at this self-righteous host. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, saying, or, or I'm sorry, Jesus answered said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So we have one response here to what's happening. And now we have another. What's, what's Simon's response? Disgust, disdain, judgment. He thinks this reflects poorly on Jesus. So much so that he begins to doubt Jesus' credentials. He's claiming to be a prophet. Well, if he is a prophet, then he would know who's touching him. He would know that prophets do not associate with these kinds of people. But Jesus, who is the true prophet, I want you to notice one thing. In verse 39, it says that, that, that Simon was thinking to himself. He said this to himself. And look what Jesus does in verse 40. Jesus answers his thoughts. I think that probably says he is a prophet. What do you think? <laughs> Answers his thoughts. He knows the thoughts and the minds of every person, including Simon, including this woman, and he proves his power to answering Simon's thoughts. And he answers it in a parable about debt in verse 41 through 43. He says this, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they cannot pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will, will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. So now, Jesus is going to illustrate to everybody what's going on around the table. And he does this in a parable, and he talks about wages and Owing, right? Debt. Now, a denarii was the equivalent of one day's wages, right? So, 500 denarii was what one person owed, and that would be about a year and a half worth of work. So, I think the median uh, earning of an American is somewhere around $40,000, okay? The average American earns $40,000 a year. So, if we apply that in today's time, then this debt would equal about $60,000 worth $60,000 worth of debt. That's a lot of money to me. It may not be a lot of money to you. $60,000 is a lot of money. And that's how much this man owed the lender. And now the other, he owed 50 denarii. That's about two months worth of wages. So that's about one-tenth of what the other person's debt was. And so that would work itself out to about $6,500 today. So that's still a lot of money to me. Right? And so, Jesus answers, or asks, which one will love the lender more? Because he forgives the debt, cancels the debt of both of them. And Simon answers clearly and correctly, the one that has had the bigger debt canceled. Now I want to talk about this word canceled for debt. Okay, It's the Greek word charis. And in most places in the New Testament, is translated as grace. In Ephesians 2.8, For by charis you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. In Colossians 2.13-14, it talks about God canceling the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross of His Son, forgiving us our trespasses. Charis, 
is the word for forgiven and canceled. And so Jesus is communicating an idea foreign to this Pharisee. Grace. Charis. Canceling debts. A debt freely forgiven. Now I want to put this before you before we close. Does a debt, this is a question. I want you to think about it real hard. Does a debt that gets canceled cease to exist? Don't answer it quickly. Think about it. Does a debt that has been canceled cease to exist? No. Because the person that cancels the debt, guess what they do? They inherit the debt, right? For instance, let's say, let's say this. Let's say you owe someone a thousand dollars. Okay? You can't pay it back. They know it. You say, look, I, I cannot get this to you. And the person just says this. You know what? Don't worry about it. I cancel your debt. You don't owe me anything. You don't pay me back. Well, the debt has not ceased to exist because that person's still out a thousand dollars. They're still, they, they still don't have the money. They're not getting it back. They inherit your debt. And what Jesus is saying here is this. All of us are in debt. We have a debt that we cannot pay. We are spiritually and morally bankrupt without the funds to pay for our sin. But when we repent and when we trust Jesus, He takes our debt. Charis. Grace. Freely given. And that debt is nailed to the cross. And that is for those who have sinned a little and those who have sinned a lot. You see that? Both of their debts were canceled. It didn't matter that one was more than the other. Both were canceled. Last thing to see. The forgiving Savior. The forgiving Savior. Verse 44, Then turning toward the woman, He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Charis. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus, He contrasts the two responses of Simon and the woman. Simon has proven his lack of respect and his lack of forgiveness by the little love that he has shown to Jesus. And in verse 47, He says, in contrast to Simon, the evidence that the woman has been forgiven, that she has found new life, is through her love that she's been displaying towards Jesus. Now I want to make one note here. This does not mean that her show of love has earned her forgiveness. It's not what, that's not what the text is saying. Instead, what Jesus is saying is this. Her love is the proof that she has been forgiven. Right? 
She is loving so much because her debt has already been forgiven. That's the, how the parable plays out. And that's what Jesus is saying about this woman. He's saying, she must have been forgiven a whole lot because of how much she loves me. Because of how much she loves me. Though her sins are many, notice, Jesus doesn't simply overlook her sins. He says she has many sins. But He acknowledges God's grace is big enough to cover even many sins. She came to that house fully aware of her sins. She knew her debt before God because of her sins. But she also knew something about Jesus. What does she know about Jesus? Verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. She knew that He's a Savior who forgives the biggest of sinners. She knew her sins. She knew they were many. But through her exercise of faith in this Savior who forgives sinners, she has come to know... What's the last word in verse 50? Peace. She's come to know peace. As we think about how do we respond to this text, I want to ask a question. What is the telltale sign of true faith in Jesus? Overwhelming love towards Him. Where there is a person who truly loves Jesus, there is faith. 